And so, Lord, would you uh, just be with us as we gather together? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are jumping into a series on, uh, we're going from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11. And let me just give you a little bit of context, sort of big picture story context, uh, so that you understand where we're at. From Genesis 12 to the end of the book is basically the story of God making and fulfilling promises to Abram and his descendants. That's the whole rest of the story. Jesus is actually a fulfillment of a promise made to Abram about his great 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 grandchildren. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are essentially one story that encompasses all of humanity. And then from Genesis 12, we get into one story that is about one family that God intended to, uh, through this family, bless all the families of the world. So what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to look at the key stories uh, from Genesis 4 through Genesis 11. And this is what you're going to find. In these early stories, we could call them ancient stories, maybe even primitive stories. But in these early stories, all of the basic struggles of living in a fallen world while figuring out how to walk with God in a fallen world, it's all there in these simple stories. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to tell you the story of Genesis chapter 4. And then I'm going to draw a few observations from this story. So, but coming into chapter 4, what do we know? Well, there's a couple things we know. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, which is a bummer, let's be honest. Not only were they driven out of the garden, they were driven away from the tree of life. In fact, Adam and Eve, in this story, as we jump into Genesis 4, Adam and Eve now have on the horizon death. It's looming. It's out there. We also know that Adam had been cursed in regards to his relationship to the dirt, meaning God said the, the plants that you've been cultivating as you've, as you've obeyed me in taking ownership of the earth, uh, the ground is going to produce for you things that you don't want it to produce. The ground is going to essentially fight back against your efforts to bring from the ground produce. And then he tells Eve, Eve, you're going to experience pain in multiplication, in childbirth. But then God says this says uh, to the serpent, he says, the seed of the woman, meaning there will, there will come an offspring from this woman that will bruise the head of the serpent. And so as you can imagine, if you're Adam and Eve and you know things have gotten really bad, and yet there's this, there's this promise in the midst of this bad news, there's this promise 
that Adam and Eve will have a child, and that child will bruise the head of the serpent. He's really caused some trouble. You can imagine, uh, it says in, in the beginning of chapter 4, it says Adam uh, got to know Eve, and uh, she conceived and gave birth to a son. That in giving birth to the son, there Adam and Eve would be, this is reading between the lines a little bit, but they look at the son and go, maybe, maybe this will be the seed that crushes serpent, that bruises the head of the serpent. Maybe this will be the undoing of the curse, right? It's interesting to me if you look at the, the story of the, the very first generation of Jesus followers, Jesus says, I'm going to go, and then I'm going to return. And they were like, okay, sounds like a plan. So he leaves. And then literally, like in the story, like 30 minutes later, they were like, so do you think he's returning yet? Do you think it's time yet? It seems like it should be about time for him to come back, right? And he didn't come back. And so then a year later, they're saying, well, maybe now he's going to come back. Maybe a year seems like a pretty adequate time frame for him to be gone, right? So Adam and Eve, having no real, at least from what we know, context of the time frame for the, the lifting of this curse give birth to a son and say, hey, we've acquired a child. That's actually what his name means. We've acquired a child. Maybe this will be it. They then had a second child. His name was Abel, which means breath. The two boys grew up. One of them liked to get his hands dirty. He took to agriculture, like real men do. Am I right, Steve? <laughs> Abel grew up and took an interest in raising flocks. And the story doesn't actually tell us why or what he did with them. When I think of raising flocks, I think of raising steak or burger. But this was pre burger uh, in human history. Uh, God had not given permission at this point uh, for man to consume the meat of animals. And so I don't know exactly what he did with flocks, but we know he raised flocks. And the story says that one day, the two of them, Cain and Abel, brought a sacrifice to the Lord, meaning uh, they brought a gift to the Lord. Abel brought a sacrifice from his own flock. Who knows? Maybe that's why he was raising flocks. But he brings a sacrifice from his own flock, and it says that he brought the fat portion with it, which means he brought the best part of, this, of the meat of the sacrifice, and he gave it to the Lord. And Cain brought a sacrifice of his crops, Probably not kale, something better. And he brought it to the Lord. And it says in the story, it says, and God had no regard for his sacrifice. He had no interest in it. He did not, he did not receive it as a gift, essentially. And Cain got really angry 
about this. It says his countenance fell. He couldn't hide his anger. His anger was obvious, could be seen. And so God, and this is actually one of my favorite things about these early stories, God conducted an interview. God asked some questions that he already knew the answer to, but he asked some questions for the benefit of the one answering the questions. He says to Cain, Cain, I uh, seem a little down. Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? And the story doesn't tell us what Cain's answer was, or if he answered. God says to Cain, Cain, you have two options. You can do well, and your countenance will be lifted. Or you cannot do well. And sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. And so Cain left there, met his brother in a field, killed him. Which is kind of an interesting turn of this story. Hope and expectation, maybe the curse will be broken, and yet we've descended further. Cain deals with his issue between him and God by taking it out on his brother. God comes back and again in his, in his brief interview, he says, where is your brother? And Cain says, who made me responsible for my brother? Am I in charge of him? I don't know. God says his blood cries out from the ground. So three observations from this story. The first one is this. I do not approach God on my terms. I do not make the conditions. I do not establish the rules. I do not approach God on my terms. There's a question in this story that actually in the story in Genesis isn't answered for us exactly. And the question is, what was the problem with Cain's sacrifice? Why did God have not just say, eh, that's not exactly what I was looking for. It actually says that God had no regard for it. Why did God have no regard for it? Um, it has, I have heard it suggested a number of times that it was because it was not a blood sacrifice, because he brought produce. And yet, uh, two things. Number one, we know that the law actually made an allowance for grain sacrifices. Secondly, we know that blood as a part of the sacrifice had not been introduced yet, at least not in this story. Maybe God just didn't like vegetables as much as he liked steak. 
Two Christmases ago, my youngest daughter gave me a coffee mug for Christmas. I had mentioned out loud that I was looking for a new coffee mug. I opened it up, and it was perfect in every way. And so, being the good dad that I am, I took some time to extol the virtues of this really perfectly designed coffee mug. It was the right size, it was the right color, it was not shiny porcelain, but it had a matte finish. It really was a great mug. And then I opened up the next gift from my next oldest daughter, and it also was a mug that shared none of the same features of the mug that I had just spent a great deal of time applauding. I still like this one, too. She's forgiven me. Was the issue that God just liked the one and he didn't like the other? I'm not sure that the God of the universe prefers steak over carrots to the extent of disregarding the one who offers the gift. Hebrews 11, again, and this is a principle in studying the scripture, the Bible is its own best commentary. Hebrews 11 says, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and for by it, men of old gained approval, meaning that just like you believe that it's not because of your own righteousness, but by entrusting yourself to God, you have relationship with him. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says it was the same thing for the men of old, that they had relationship with God by faith, by entrusting themselves to him. And then the writer says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith. The ingredient of Abel's offering that Cain's offering lacked was the ingredient of faith through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks, meaning his testimony is still with us today. The problem with Cain's sacrifice is that Cain's sacrifice was not an act of faith, an act of entrusting himself to God. I know, and I speak from my own experience, you can testify for yourself, I know that I can actually do righteous things, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, in protest of fully entrusting myself to God. And this is what I mean. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and this. Why in the world do you need me to do this? Can't you just give this a rest and leave me alone in this area? Have you ever done that? I'm purchasing my, my privilege of, of, of determining my terms in my relationship with God. Look at all of this. Why do you need that? Cain was going through the motions. He was not responding to God in faith. He was not making himself dependent upon God. He was not motivated by sincere love and obedience to God, and God says, I don't need your offering. I don't need a plate of vegetables to make me happy. It's by faith that Abel offered a better 
sacrifice. I do not approach God on my terms. Number two, approaching God on his terms is countenance lifting. It's not about just agreeing to the rules. Remember, God is always inviting us to life abundant. And when we say yes to him on his terms, when we walk in obedience and trusting ourselves fully to him, it is countenance lifting. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He says, faith is not just accepting that God exists. Cain believed that God existed. He says, and believing that God is the treasure, that God is the reward, right? That, that when I say yes to him, there is a benefit there. Approaching God on his terms is countenance lifting. There's this passage in Romans. It's talking about faith and works. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes, that's faith, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So to the person who says, I don't trust in my own ability, I'm going to fully entrust myself to God. I know that my sacrifice isn't sufficient, so God, I just have to trust you. Romans says that God credits that faith to that person as righteousness. And then he gives an example. He said, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, and then he quotes David from Psalms 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin in the Lord will not take into account. He's actually quoting Psalms 32, which is the psalm that David wrote after his incident with Bathsheba. And in Psalms 32, David says, there was a time when I was withholding and saying no to God regarding my sin. And then he says in Psalms 32, and I was literally wasting away. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and I've done this, and there's this one thing that I said no to God about, and that one thing has now become the whole thing. And then David says, and then I gave it up. I confessed and said, God, I need you. I need to be right with you. And then David writes, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Approaching God on his terms, fully entrusting myself to him, is always countenance lifting. There's a freedom and a joy in that place. Number three, sticking to my terms is always cracking the door for sin. Or 
God says to Cain, if you do not do well, if you don't make this right, if you don't address your heart, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. That statement, its desire is for you, means it wants to master you. It wants to own you. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Sin enslaves. God says sin is, is crouching at the door, ready to pounce on you, ready to get its claws into you, wants to own you, to, to bring you into bondage. And if you say no to me, what you're doing is you're cracking that door open. Years ago, Jason and I, my brother and I, had a brown bear creep up on us in a swamp. We were sitting against a little spruce tree, calling for moose, looking the same direction, and he crept up behind us without making a noise. When I saw the bear, I had a pretty good feeling that he wasn't there just to say hello or to hang out. Pretty sure that bear's desire was for me. Sin is looking for an opportunity to become your master, to own you, to pounce on you, to destroy you. And when you say, no, I'm going to do relationship with God on my terms. If I decide I want to keep this thing, if I, want to, if I decide I want to say no to God in this area, then that's my deal. God says, you're cracking the door open. You can say no, but that option comes with consequences. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Comes to God and he says, look at all the stuff that I've done. And Jesus says, there's actually an area that you've withheld and said no to God in, and it's your finances. And you don't get to establish the terms. God establishes the terms. And unless you meet with him and walk in obedience and entrusting yourself to God in regards to your finances, that's going to become the whole thing, right? And the story actually says, just like it does with Cain, it says that he, he became very sad. His countenance fell. I personally know the wrestling match of trying to come to God on my terms and the problems that it causes, even the division that it causes, these are not new things. I know exactly where Cain is. I remember being a, a young Bible school student fresh out of high school and saying exactly this to the Lord. I've done this and this and this and this. Why in the world do you need to lay your hands on this? This is mine, and I don't plan to give this up. And I remember, in fact, I have these like vivid recollections of being in a place just like this, a time of worship before God, and watching another person free and joyful, celebrating the Lord, and just feeling, I don't even know what, this angst, because I can't enjoy that, because I've said no. I've decided to do it on my terms, and that's costing me now. And what did it cost Cain? The murder of his brother. That's not just cracking the door. 
that's flinging it wide open. Here's the promise, James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's not some secret magic recipe, and if you get it just right, maybe God will consider. It's a heart that is after the Lord. It says, if you draw near to God, you will experience this miracle of God drawing near to you. If you will humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, He will lift you up. When you approach Him on His terms, it is countenance lifting. You know, my prayer is that every single person in this room today, right now, would be able to give a full and unconditional yes to you. God, when we know that when we say no in one area, the ramifications, the consequences of that quickly get out of control. We see that on a national scale even. When we turn from you, it's a, it's a, it's a dark downward spiral. When we turn from you, we actually end up turning against each other. Would you give us the capacity to come to you, hearts full of faith, entrusting ourselves to you, saying yes to you, and believing you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you guys stand?